Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Recurly is looking for a senior product designer. This is a remote position, but they are specifically looking for candidates in Boulder, Colorado, San Francisco, California, or New Orleans, Louisiana. Moto Refi is looking for a director of product design in Washington, D.C. Imprint Projects is looking for an associate creative director. This is a remote position. And Duke University Press is looking for an art director for books and journals. This position is located in Durham, North Carolina. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our diverse international audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. On the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, join the Harvard Graduate School of Design virtually for the Black in Design 2021 conference. This year's theme, Black Matter, is a celebration of black space and creativity from the magical to the mundane. Their speakers, performers, and panelists will bring nuance to the trope of black excellence and acknowledge the urgent political, spatial, and ecological crises facing black communities across the diaspora. You don't want to miss out on this weekend of learning, community, and connection. Visit them online at blackmatter.tv to learn more and be a part of the event. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention that it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Dr. Christina N. Harrington, 
assistant professor in the HCI Institute at Carnegie Mellon University and the director of the Equity and Health Innovations Design Research Lab. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. All right, so I am Christina Harrington. I am a Southern Black queer creative technologist. I have backgrounds in both engineering and design. I'm a tinkerer. I'm a crafter. I'm a inquisitive, you know, how does this work inside mechanics logic type person. Right now, I am in the space of higher education academia. I'm an assistant professor at the Human Computer Interaction Institute at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And I teach kind of at that intersection of design and HCI, where we think about people and what people need when they engage with technology, why people engage with technology the ways that they do, the ways that technology can better support black and brown folks, folks that may not have the infrastructure to interact with the newest or, you know, coolest tech or gadgets or whatever, but that could really benefit from tech being, you know, ubiquitous in their everyday lives. I'm a writer a little bit in terms of talking about design and and figuring out ways to have these conversations about design outside of the walls of academia. Yeah. Speaking of writing, you were one of the first people that we published on Revision Path when we did our recognized design anthology back in 2019. Yeah. 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 You scared me with that one. (laughs) It's, it's crazy because going through school, I was like, it was almost like you were told you, you can either be really good at math and science or you can do like the whole, the humanity side of things. And I always wanted to write because I, I just felt like sometimes like expressing ideas is just as equally powerful through text as it is through sketching something. And when I saw that revision path call, I was like, I'm just going to jump out there and see what happens. And I was super, super, super nervous, which is crazy because I had done like a whole dissertation (laughs) and conference proceeding papers and journal articles. But I was like, I really, really, really want to get into this anthology. And I really want to do writing that kind of has a little bit more of my voice and a little bit less of like academic technical jargon very, I don't know, polished speech. Yeah. So it was really, really cool. Thank you for that opportunity. No, well, thank you for uh, for submitting it. I mean, we unfortunately we had to. I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but I certainly had wrote about it. Unfortunately, I kind of took a hiatus from recognized this year. The pandemic mm-hmm. really sort of did a number on honestly, like the number of people that were submitting, which sort of made sense. I mean, folks were just trying to survive out here. They weren't thinking about trying to, you know, sort of write stuff. But then the things that we would get, people just wouldn't like write to the prompt. They'd write what they wanted to write. Like to give you an example, the year that we did the first anthology and the theme was space. A lot of people wrote about Nipsey Hussle and I'm not super familiar with Nipsey Hussle. I don't know if there's like a a space theme in his rap or anything, but I was like, Mm -hmm. why are so many people writing stuff about Nipsey Hussle? This has nothing to do with space. Or maybe it does. I don't know. Is that the year he passed? Yeah, that was the year he passed. I mean, I imagine that might be part of it. 
I, I've no, I don't know anything about Nipsey Hussle either, but. Yeah, if people are listening and want to clue me in, please do. Because I was like, why am I getting all these? And like, it wasn't just that people were writing poems. People were submitting artwork. And I'm like, no, I just I just need an essay. I don't need yeah. I don't need something in Photoshop. I don't need to see something you painted. But mm-hmm. thank you, I guess. But mm-hmm. I plan to bring Recognize back at some point in the future. I just think right now, probably the timing's not great for it. But hopefully, hopefully in the future, with more support, I'll try to get it back out there. That's one of the things about like thinking about how we stretch design, right? Because saying that you got like so many people that were submitting like, you know, artwork in Photoshop and it's like designers are afraid to write sometimes. Mm, yeah. I've, I've literally heard like running jokes, designers, engineers, CS, uh, folk, like computer science folks that are like, I'm a engineer or I'm a computer scientist. Like I don't write. And it's like, wait, 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 how do you communicate what you've done? Or how do you communicate your ideas behind what you have built or what you're envisioning? There's so much space for that yet folks shy away from it. So, so much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly something that I was trying to put forth through recognize is to have more people just write because it helps you, you know, like you said, formalize your ideas. If you're an entrepreneur, it helps with, writing better proposals, writing better proofs, just communication Mm -hmm. in general, it tends Mm -hmm. to be really helpful. So, I mean, we even had a writer actually a couple of episodes ago had our first writer on the show. He, I think in his background, he called himself a verbal designer, which I thought was really interesting, but uh, he's a writer. And we talked all about how like writing is at least nowadays is such a crucial part of the design process. And so it was good just to have someone who is a writer, like, come on and really talk about like, yeah, I, I'm a writer and this is how I work within design teams and on design projects and kind of giving feedback to designers about what they could do to either strengthen their writing or improve their writing or even see the importance of writing in the whole design process. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, aside from the new appointment, how's the year been going? Like, what's been on your mind? The year has been transformational and also kind of like you feel like you're sludging through mud at the same time i think the world is like a really crazy place right now Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's like oh all of these things are going on and 2020 2021 is like this unprecedented time in life or if it's like no the world's always kind of been crazy but as you get older you have more of a connection to why right like Politics have always been wild in the United States, but for some of us, it's not until we get older that you start to really see how like, oh, like the ways that we're voting are impacting like, I don't have health care. I can't go to, to the doctor and take care of myself. Like, I can't do the things with my body as a person who identifies as a woman in the United States that I want to because of the state that I live in. Like, I think that all of those things on top of like a global health pandemic are happening at the same time. It, I'm like, am I becoming an empath in my old age that it just <laughs> I literally <laughs> have days where I'm like, I can't today because everything feels so heavy and yeah. it feels pointless to be writing a journal article or to be writing a conference paper. And these are things that I like to do, but there are some days lately where I'm just, I don't have the motivation. I've been seeing a lot of like memes and all of these articles that are talking about how black women in particular are just like, we are collectively burnt out. And I think it goes to earlier, you know, the question you asked about like, you know, the things that have happened in the last year 
in terms of like, you know, really intensified racial moments. And it's like, we dealt with a couple of months of white people coming out of the cracks of the sidewalk, asking us how we're doing and apologizing for things. I don't even know you. All of that contributes to this, like just community exhaustion. I'm kind of feeling from a lot of my friends and a lot of folks. Yeah. So on the one hand with this new job and with this new role, it's really exciting. It's, it's, it's a blessing to be here. You know, my career in terms of academia has shot through the roof to places I don't think I ever would have imagined, but I am very tired. I'm very tired with just holding all of the emotions of what's happening in in the world. Yeah, I think that's been a, a general sort of feeling that I've gotten from talking with a lot of Black creatives, just a lot of Black friends of mine. It's been like, we're just tired. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like a lasagna of fatigue. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) like there's tiredness of just like you being a Black person in this country. And then on top of that, whatever, you know, other identities you have on top of that, whether you are queer or trans or what have you. Then on top of that, just like, this whole pandemic and coronavirus and these variants. And then on top of that, there's the government like forcefully pushing people back out into the world. Like no more mask mandates, get back out there. Like it's, it's levels, like even the whole, and I don't mean to get super political, but like the the insurrection was this year. Yeah. Like, like so time, much has happened. Time is so warped right now. Yeah. Time is so warped right now. You, there's no concept of time because it feels like things are back to back. And it also feels like there's so many intertwined struggles that you you can't parse out something to say, this is what's upsetting me because everything's connected, right? Like, yeah, I think that when we think about the moments that we had, the uprisings that we had like last summer, and it's like, you're mad about that. You're angry about that because collectively, you know, black lives have been proven over and over again to be, disposable in this country. But then at the same time, within those conversations, we have to talk about how Black, queer, and trans people are treated when they also, too, are part of those Black lives. And what does it mean to have to have those conversations among other Black folks who are telling you (laughs) it's not time to have that? We can't talk about that right now. Don't be divisive right now. And watch the number of Black trans women being killed continue to rise. Watch people not mention the names of the Black trans men or the gender non-binary folks who have also been murdered at the hands of like the state and police. Watch folks not want to talk about the rates of, of homelessness and, and just all of these things. And it's like, whew, you can't touch on one part of it without pulling that thread and the whole sweater unraveling. So yet it's a different type. I think I ask my social media once every two weeks, like, what's the word for past exhausted? Like what, what, (laughs) what happens after you're exhausted? What is that called? Yeah. I don't know. I feel, I feel like we're all at some point trying to persevere through whatever that state might be called, but it's there. Now we've jumped in like both feet in this discussion. So I want to do, I do want to bring it back to your work and what you're doing. So you mentioned your assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon uh, at the HCI Institute. Can you talk about what that is and sort of what you'll be teaching? Yeah. So the HCI Institute, it's kind of like a dream job for me. It's like this collection of, they joke, like a collection of almost misfits of like people across computer science, human computer interaction, design, 
folks that are interested in that intersection of people and technology, technology and environment, people and environment, and anything that has to do with the ways that we interact with the digital world is right. It's kind of that, that area of human computer interaction. I think what's so dope about the HCI Institute at Carnegie Mellon is it's one of the few, if not the only spaces designated purely to like human computer interaction degrees. You can study human computer interaction in schools of computing, sometimes in schools of design within the United States, but to find a space where they're like, we know exactly what this is. And it's kind of thus become like the leading institution for how HCI is thought about, right? To be at the place where it's kind of like this is, you know, some of the, the work that's come out of this institute, this university, is what we've based other research on is definitely cool for me. I think a little larger than that, being at Carnegie Mellon, where they also have a really high-ranked school of design and folks that work across that so seamlessly because they do go hand in hand. I think that that's just, it's really, really, really exciting for me. And a lot of what, you know, I'll be teaching is everything from, you know, foundational courses and introduction to like user experience design or human computer interaction. Or I like to say that I'm a methods girl. I love design research methods. I love talking about how we find or, or, or engaging with students around how they learn about the people that they're designing with or for, how they engage people in design. And all of that is like design methods, right? Like, you know, you could go your traditional research route of just doing an interview, or you could be doing like card sorting or role playing or artifact analysis, like all of these really cool things that designers have in their, their tool belt. So I will be teaching any one of those things, but also hopefully introducing courses that consider design equity and design justice and thinking about design where design has not been talked about. Mm. I first got exposed to HCI. Wow, this is, I'm dating myself. This was 20 years ago. Oh my God. It was 20 years ago. I was a intern at Marshall Space Flight Center in, uh, right outside of Huntsville, Alabama. It's normal Alabama is the city. And I remember my mentor at the time, like we were studying or he was studying HCI as it related to like haptic interfaces. And it was so funny because he was like, you know, like in the future, we'll have like a computer that's just like the size of a sheet of paper. Basically, he's talking mm-hmm. about a tablet. And this was, my God, this was 2000, 2001, something like that. Mm-hmm. But talking about like, learning how we interact with haptic interfaces. And Mm -hmm. I think it was still very new at the time. I mean, I I find that a lot of innovation that tends to happen sometimes through NASA eventually trickles into consumer stuff. Cause that was also where I saw my first 3d printer was Mm -hmm. back then because they print the nose cone of the space shuttle is Mm. made out of this substance called Marcor and it it burns up on reentry when the space shuttles, you know, reenter the atmosphere but mm-hmm. they they print that out every time. They literally like print it out, a big machine, mm-hmm. and replace the nose cone every time. And I was like, oh, wow. That's, I was like, so you're printing in 3D. Like, I don't know why that, I mean, I was, what, 19, 20 at the time. That blew my mind. Like, it's you're printing in 3D. <laughs> it, still, it still blows my mind. Yeah, I didn't know that. Definitely learned something. 
Yeah, I think HCI has been around for a while. I mean, definitely since the late 90s, just from like the, the academic texts that I'm familiar with. Or I actually, I'd say I can think of papers in the mid to late 90s that have talked about human-computer interaction because the minute we started talking about computers, we had to talk about how folks are interacting with computers. And I think initially that was done in like the human factor space, mm-hmm. thinking about work and cognition and like mental load and task load and what it takes to for a computer to remember and how that's to remember chunks of like information and memory and how that is like into the human brain and then what the, the, the person can be expected to be able to do and tasks and stuff like that. And then human computer interaction came along and then somewhere down the road, design kind of like attached itself in a very particular way because we thought we started talking about how do we develop the tools that we're either building computers with, how do we develop the code, how do we kind of create the housing of the computers and like, you know, we're talking about new phones and we're talking about new tablets or iPods. When Apple came along and started doing that so, 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 so well, and not to say that this was the initiation of it, but it's it's always my go-to example because Apple is just kind of like the mecca of design for me when you're talking about consumer products, technology, consumer products. Then I really think, you know, folks started having conversations about the way things looked in the technology space mm-hmm. and the way things were experienced in the technology space. I think it's it's a cool place to be in terms of like the work that I do. And now with HCI, are you focusing on hardware, software, or both? Neither. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm focused on... So I am the anti-technologist technologist. I'm focused <laughs> on how we think about everyday technologies in people's lives, right? I'm not necessarily trying to design the software of the phone, and I'm not necessarily trying to design the casing of the phone, but I'm trying to think about how the phone can be used as a tool for health information for folks who might not have access to medical professionals on a consistent basis. Mm. I'm the, the researcher that's trying to consider well, in what ways can we embed public displays or, you know, how, how can we get community health information out there for people who don't have Wi-Fi in the home or computers at home? And so such that they're not behind, you know, when we think about like the pandemic and how a lot of that information that was coming out from the CDC, I was seeing it on Twitter. I was seeing it on Instagram. You're getting alerts. Like the CDC just, you know, made this update and here are the places where you can get tested and things like that. How do we get that information to people who aren't so heavily reliant on their their phones? And do we do that through public libraries and, you know, computers in public libraries? Do we do that through health kiosks that are at the Walgreens or the CVS? That's the level at which I'm thinking about technology. Actually, that makes a lot more sense, too, mm-hmm. to think about it in that way. And I think it's it's because now, I mean, ha- uh, you know, just thinking about haptic interfaces and everything like that. I mean, everything that we utilize with technology, it feels like it's through some sort of a, a touch interface or a, mm-hmm. a, an audio interface or something like that. So thinking about how it works within the context 
of our lives and spreading information and stuff like that is is really crucial. That's a good point that you mm-hmm. mentioned about with the CDC stuff, because like my folks are in rural Alabama. And mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, I was passing the information to them on the telephone because yep. they don't have an internet connection. They don't have a computer. So they're not going to get that that information in the way that it's it's going out, especially because one, they're in the rural South, but two, you know, broadband is not everywhere in this country. So it's not a public utility in that way. Like, you know, the plain old telephone services. Yeah. And unfortunately, the reason I focus on digital access and design equity is because I, I've been, you know, this, this, the poem and the, the quote, like, and Whitey's on the moon, like we're trying to get information to our folks in rural areas, mm. but we have communities that are literally <laughs> shipping off to Mars to escape the realities of what's happening down here. And it's like, there's such a gap. There's such a, an imbalance in the things, the ways that technology is utilized between certain communities. So it's like, at some point we have to say, Hey guys, we can't keep building new, 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 while we have communities that are still like, wait, what's a Google home? What's Alexa? Like, Oh, I could use that to Mm -hmm. track my doctor's appointment. Like what? Like that, that gap, that dissonance is something that I feel like I'm always going to have an area where my work is needed because we have folks that are so focused on creating these technologies for the year (laughs) 2032 and we're still trying to get some folks caught up to the year 2005. Yeah, a lot of those futurist innovations really just like, they just completely blow by a lot of communities. And I mean, even with smart speakers, like I think I got my mom a smart speaker. I don't know. It was a while ago, probably back in like the early mm-hmm. 2010s or whatever, when they first started coming out. And Alexa couldn't recognize her, couldn't recognize her accent. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, mm-hmm. that's not good. And, you know, she ended up giving mm-hmm. it to me. And I think I... I don't even still have it anymore. But to that point, like, yeah, you've got these other interfaces and stuff like that. And the tech tends to be so focused on the next big innovations when like there's still so many issues right now that need solving. And I don't know if it's because these are not like flashy, sexy news making issues that need Mm -hmm. to be solved. But like it's a huge chasm between Mm -hmm. the work that needs to be done and the work that's being done. It's also why you don't have a whole lot of people focusing on it Mm -hmm. because it's not sexy, innovative work. Right. I get hit with the the same question wherever like, oh, do you do hardware? Do you do software? Are you in AI? Are you in machine learning? Are you in VR? And it's like, "Eh, I'm in the space of information because (laughs) folks are still trying to learn how to understand the full features of what your phone can do to support your everyday living. To jump to here's a headset that can make it seem like you're pumping ice cream at McDonald's in Kansas. It's like, okay, that's cool, but we've skipped a whole area for certain folks. So, yeah. yeah. That reminds me of what I saw on, I think it was (laughs) maybe last week or this week, I think, with Good Morning America Facebook debuting these like virtual reality workrooms. And like everybody's got on a $300 VR headset to meet in a virtual space to have meetings. I'm like, this is the most ridiculous shit I have ever seen Mm -hmm. in my life. I mean, it's one thing that we can't get together because of the pandemic. We're like, now I have to buy a $300 peripheral just so we can sit in second life 
and talk yeah. about, you know, status updates. It's ridiculous. <laughs> now you're you're also heading up the Equity and Health Innovations Design Research Lab. Talk to me about what that is and like what some of the projects are that are coming out of the lab. Yeah, I mean the EHI lab is is literally just that. Like I came through both my master's and my PhD and like heavy lab cultures. I was involved in the research in ergonomics and design uh, research lab at North Carolina State. And then I worked with the human factors and aging lab at uh, Georgia Tech. So becoming a faculty, literally the first thing I wanted, I don't know why I was so obsessed, but I was like, I need a lab. Like I want a lab where I can kind of curate projects, but not just for namesake or, you know, ownership of a space, but more so um, one of the things I've really been trying to do is kind of like, you know, kick open the doors of academic research to the communities that we sit in. So I wanted something where communities know like, okay, if we're trying to do something, if we're trying to, to build something, we can go to, we can come here and collaborate and build and work and, and voice concerns or, or discuss some of the things that we're trying to do. So most all of my work is community-based participatory design, what I call like CVPD, which stems off of community-based participatory action research that you'll find in like public health sectors where it's like letting the community define the need, define the project, define the scope of what we're doing, which in academia sometimes means flipping on its head what the project outcomes are. How can we do a design research project and put something in the hands of community before we ever publish a paper or present at a conference or do a poster or whatever? And that means creating zines. That means one of the projects that we've been working on for almost a year now is the development, the creation and the development of a speculative design toolkit for communities to be able to brainstorm without the leadership of a formal design researcher or a professor or academic PI or whatever you want to call it to say, you know, we, we want to brainstorm our own solution to this thing that we've been working on, whether it be reimagining what to do with an abandoned building on a particular block, or we're trying to get safety cameras put in at the basketball court so that parents feel safe so that with their kids being out there late, or we're trying to get broadband access in a particular neighborhood. Like, how can we think about that through a design lens? How can we brainstorm that? How can we kind of iterate on what solutions might look like? So we've been developing this toolkit that we've been calling Building Utopia, and we've been working with community practitioners who do, community design practitioners who do just exactly that, that type of work. So Jen Roberts from the Colored Girls Liberation Lab, an amazing, brilliant Ende uh, who works with Black Women Flourish Collective, which you may or may not be familiar with. Isn't uh, she's uh, they're one of the co-founders of that with Denise Shanti Brown. Ende mm-hmm. and Jen have been collaborating with my lab on the development of this toolkit, and we've been testing it and refining it and hoping to launch it maybe sometime this year, early next year. I told myself that I wanted to do projects that I cared about. So what are the projects that matter 
to black and brown folks. I think what you mentioned about your mom is actually a really great example because that's another one of the big projects I've been doing is looking at health information seeking with voice assistance for black elders and how do we meet the needs of them being able to ask health related questions of these devices that right now for all intents and purposes don't want to understand our voices, our accents, our dialects, the words that we use that may not be formal language. And mm-hmm. and so that's another one of the projects that's coming out of my lab at the moment. And we've been looking at how do we redefine more ideal conversational assistance? How do we define what the conversational dynamic Black elders want to see looks like? And we've been doing that in a very community-based participatory manner. Those are the types of things like I kind of let the work that I'm doing lead me, like doing this project. And when you hear enough people say one thing and it's like, okay, here's that defines what the next project is. Like when the toolkit literally came out of us exploring speculative design with folks that are like, yeah, this is all well and good. But what do we do when when the academic researchers are gone and the students have finished whatever project and studio classes are over and we're still trying to think through some of these things. And it's like, oh, well, what if we worked collaboratively with folks to develop a toolkit that is kind of like a resource for folks to do that work when we're without the need of having to engage with universities or or industry designers? So yeah, that's kind of what the EHI lab is about. And the things that I'm open to doing is really just closing that gap that I was mentioning earlier between the ways design has been used in communities of privilege and affluency and the ways that design can impact communities that are not defined that way. Mm. As you've been sort of going through these things with the lab, it's interesting uh, that you said that the problems or the, the things that you all are working on kind of uncover themselves as you start talking to people, as you start using the things that are coming out of the lab more. It's, it's almost, I don't know, self generating in a way like you're finding new ideas as you get out there and talk with other people and i mean i think that's a good thing that's how labs are labs are for experimentation yeah definitely and now prior to this you were teaching at depaul university in chicago for a number of years when you look back at that time what do you think you learned that really prepared you for what you're doing now oh uh, several things i mean definitely i think depaul being one of the few formal like schools of design that had a PhD that also was open and kind of starting to define design in this very like social good, social impact way. DePaul, A, I'd say is known really well for like games design, graphic design. And then you had folks that were also starting to define this sector of like Dr. Sheena Arete's lab, the technology for social good and this area of like social impact. I think it was a great home for me to kind of like start off and define my own research interests and my own research agenda and, and how I was going to maneuver through some of these projects in an academic space. And I think Chicago was a really great city to do that because Chicago is kind of like this very, I don't want to say social impact when you're talking about things outside of academia, but like Chicago has this like movement activist equity 
driven lens just inherent throughout a lot of the work being done in the city. Mm -hmm. So I think engaging with outside organizations and then seeing how other faculty were engaging with the city and different organizers and community partners is definitely something that rubbed off on me. And then I think DePaul as a university being a place where you really get to harness teaching students. I've been, you know, in this research thing since I started my master's program, but teaching is is very rarely something they teach you how to do. Like, how do you effectively develop course objectives and get something, you know, evaluate students in ways that's not just throwing a 300 question exam at them. And I think I was able to learn a lot of that at DePaul. I want to go general, like more into your your background, because you have an extensive educational background and everything. But let's kind of start from the beginning. Now, you you mentioned at the top of the show that you're Southern. So where mm-hmm. did you grow up? I am from Fayetteville, North Carolina, born and raised. So at some point, my parents moved to Richmond, Virginia. And then when my parents split, all of my family was still back in my mom's side of the family was and my dad's was still back in North Carolina. But we had the closest relationship with my mom's side. We literally were in Fayetteville whenever she was not (laughs) on the clock at work Mm -hmm. because that's where her support system was. So North Carolina is very ingrained in me, but I I did a lot of my schooling during the week in, in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia. Were you exposed to a lot of like tech and design growing up? What I would consider the tech and design that I know now, no. I went to the math and science center. I was one of those those kids in middle school. I went to the math and science center in middle school. I forget how I got into that. I was always a tinkerer, even in like my younger, you know, elementary school days. I was always like trying to take things apart, put things together, build things from scratch. I remember one year when I had the concept of like what a birthday is and you get people a gift. I tried to build my mom these shoes by like taking one of her pair of shoes and tracing it on like paper and then foam and then the stuffing of like the foam that comes out of like a packing box and trying to build up these layers so I could build her a more comfortable pair of shoes because she was always working. (laughs) But I don't think because design hadn't really reached a lot of high schools and middle schools, it was like, okay, you're doing that. So you're supposed to be an engineer, right? There was no Mm -hmm. concept of like, you're supposed to be a designer. I never heard the word design or like designer. I literally was, was told you're good at math and science. You're tinkering, go be an engineer. I remember telling my high school guidance counselor, he was like, I was clearly doing well. And I was in gifted honors classes and this, that, and the third. So like, okay, I'm going to go to college. Here's where I'm applying. He's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to build electronics. Like I want to come up, you know, I want to create electronics. And he's like, oh, go to, go to school for electrical engineering. Yeah. And then my uncle was an electrical engineer that graduated from North Carolina a So I went to college for electrical engineering. And it wasn't until I did a summer bridge program at Virginia Tech that's no longer there, but it used to be called Aspire. But it, it was for incoming Black, Latinx, and I believe at that time, even Asian students to take these summer courses at Virginia Tech the summer before you started your fall semester as a way of, to like promote retention because mm-hmm. minority students 
had low numbers of finishing in these degrees at institutions like Virginia Tech. So I did this program. And so you then came into the fall semester of your freshman year with this cohort of folks. And I became really close with some of the guys because it was mainly guys. And I think it was like maybe six girls out of like 40 students. But I remember two of my guy friends that did that program with me and were engineering students. They were mechanical engineering students. They were getting a minor in this thing called industrial design. And I was like bored one day and like, I'm going to go to class with y'all. And I went to one of their industrial design classes. I think it was Mitzi Vernon teaching uh, design research at Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. And I like fell in love with it. I was like, what is this thing? And I literally left that class and I went into the College of Architecture's like front desk office. And I was like, how do I sign up for this minor? Like, I want to do this too. Yeah. And then I went to my undergraduate advisor and was like, okay, now how can I make my senior thesis integrate industrial design? Because I want to, I changed my whole senior thesis to like, instead of just a electrical engineering project, it became a designing a sensor and designing the hardware of the sensor that could detect vehicles that were coming at joggers and bikers at a certain speed for like safety, right? I've always been about like safety and, and designing for impairments and things like that. And I just fell in love with design, taking this design research class and then taking these sketching classes and I forget the other classes that were needed for the minor, but, and as I kind of moved through that minor and then going back to get my master's in industrial design, I realized that like, that's where I wanted to be because engineering, and this is no slight to the engineers, but like, I just felt like engineering put me in a cubicle where I didn't get to talk to people and I Mm. didn't get to understand people the ways that I wanted to and design was like, okay, you're, you're designing the thing. You're also thinking about the core guts of the thing, but you're also understanding the person that's going to be interacting with the thing. And the period between when I graduated from undergrad and before I started my master's, I worked at Motorola as an RF systems engineer. I was sitting in a cube eight, nine hours a day designing radio packages for the government. I never talked to anybody. I never (laughs) went out into like, and I hated it. So when I went back to get my master's in industrial design, it felt like some clouds were opening up. So I was like, oh, this is where I want to be. Yeah. And the further I explored that, the better I defined like exactly what design meant to me and also realized how limited uh, a lot of folks are in being exposed to design. Cause I could have been doing that the whole time. Yeah. I think an interesting kind of trend that I'm seeing here that is sort of what you're, you know, kind of continuing in your work is that you had the idea that in terms of going into your, your education, like, you knew that you were good at these things, but you only had a very limited kind of view of like what that could look like, which in turn ended up being engineering. I empathize with that too, because like when I went into school, I wanted to do web design. This was in the mm-hmm. like late nineties, early two thousands. And I remember my computer science. Well, no, first of all, I was told, Oh, you should go into computer science to design a website. <laughs> and at the time I had enrolled in like this computer science, computer engineering, dual degree program. You do three years at Morehouse. You do two years at Georgia Tech. You get out with a master's and a bachelor's. And I was telling my advisor I wanted to design websites. And he just laughed in my face like, the internet is a fad. Like, this is what you want to do? We don't do that here. And I eventually, like, I switched my major and, like, went into math because Morehouse doesn't have a design program. 
I do think about now how different my career might have been if I ended up going into more of that design route. But I'm bringing this up because what it sounds like for you is that you started out doing this engineering. And then as you learn more information and saw these other paths that were open, that then shifted you more towards design. So like it's that that thing about access and I guess equity in some respect, but just access to knowing that this is an option that you can take. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And it's like, I think hearing your story kind of fuels that point of, you know, how often are young black and brown students being pushed towards these degrees and or this area, right? You don't necessarily have to have a degree to be a designer. I think design is like a skill set. Design is also uh, a way of thinking that a lot of people inherently have or what we all inherently have. It's just whether or not we express ourselves in that way. But I wonder how we are exposing like black and brown kids to exploring that as a potential thing to do to harness your creativity or to build, you know, to make a living or whatever it is you want to do out of life. And it's not a lot. It's wild because I think there's so many reasons why design is an expensive especially like a master's or a PhD in design, it's an expensive area because Mm -hmm. design proper doesn't fall under like a lot of the, like the gym and you know, the NSFs and the gyms and the the fellowships that are going to pay your way. Right. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people that are going back and getting post-baccalaureate degrees in design are paying out of pocket or loans. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's already going to curate a particular type of folk that's able to do that and not feel financial stress. And then I think now people have more of a understanding and a vocabulary around design, but 10 or 15 years ago, when you say, I want to be a designer and it's like, well, are you, are you going to make any money doing that? You know? And so then, and I think black and brown students are oftentimes limited in having that as a constraint when they come out, you know, when, if they go to school, it's like, I got to pick a major that I'm going to do a job that makes money. We're not always afforded the opportunity to say, you know, I want to do this thing regardless of what the return of investment is going to be. And so all of these things kind of contribute to we push or in the past, at least our communities have been pushed to do certain things, to study certain things Mm -hmm. and design has not been one of them. And so then it becomes this like elite thing that people think I can't do design. I can't, I don't, my brain doesn't think in that way. And it's like, if you had a problem at home this morning and you no longer have it because you figured something, you created some type of workaround or you Jimmy rigged your door to no longer creak when you were trying to go in and out of your bedroom to get watermelon at night, like whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing design. And it's reframing how we think about what design is and how people think about how they can, what they can do with design. I think we're starting to see that more now you have design that's trickled out through throughout so many sectors. You have literal government agencies that are now wanting to hire people talking about design to address city infrastructure problems, to, to address urban planning problems, to like all of these things there's so much value now in, in people considering design as a lens to just think through things. It might not even have to be about problems. It can just be about 
the process of ingenuity and creativity. But I think for my generation, at least, that's just such a new thing. Because when I was coming out of K through 12, you know, people were not talking about it. I was never exposed to it. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I'm going to, you know, just put this out here and folks can quote me on that. I attribute a lot of that, I think, new thinking around how folks approach design to the fact that the people that are talking about design, like you look at just a general makeup, has gotten a lot more diverse than it has been in previous years because you've got more people, more black and brown people, more queer people, et cetera, bringing their perspectives, which are a mix of education and lived experience into what design is, that it's helping for a lot of people to expand what the definition of design looks like. I mean, I remember in like the 2000s, I mean, I was out of college, I was like early in my career, and everything about design, at least around like web stuff, because it was still just still pretty early. It was just all about web stuff. What's the latest framework? What's the late? And it wasn't about how are we solving problems? Like UX wasn't really a I won't say UX wasn't a thing. It certainly wasn't as prevalent as it is now. People did UX mm-hmm. stuff, but it was not, it was not as, uh, I think known or accepted. I want to say as being like a hardcore front end person or back end person or something like that. And now, I mean, it's amazing the titles that you see, the type of work that you're able to do in design that is in large part, I think, cause just more people, more diverse people are out there talking about it, sharing their experiences. And showing and really showing other people how design is not just something that's done like on a computer or with a pen and paper or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even to your point, those tools have also helped to kind of break down the barriers to design. Mm, yeah. I mean, if you think about the number, one of the reasons I love like black people on social media in the ways, I don't know if you saw like, it was like a, a couple of years ago and someone created a movie like poster, like coming soon for set it off too. And it was so real that I got upset. Cause I was like, nah, leave set it off alone. Like we do not need to set it off too. Jada lid. Everybody was down. Like there's nothing you can do with it. I think it had like Tiana Taylor on the cover and <laughs> somebody else, but it was because someone got in Photoshop and was so sick with Photoshop that they created this thing that looked like it came out of somebody's media company. Like it was actually happening. We have black, like we've gotten so sick with our Photoshop and illustrator and just our creative skills because of these digital tools that you have so many people that you don't need the four-year degree to be like, I'm an illustrator. I'm a designer. I create flyers. I do the promotion for this restaurant. You know what I mean? Like I help this photographer clean up their prints. Like there's so many different ways to do it now because of digital tools. And I think that that's the dope thing about design because we've now started to see it literally infiltrate corners where folks never would have thought about doing that type of thing. And again, like I said, it that then starts to to bleed back into one of design's origins of political propaganda, because now mm. I can literally build a career doing the social media promotion for Elizabeth Warren, or I can literally build a career doing a uh, design for Black Lives Matter direct action. I think 
now when you're seeing organizations and collectives like Designers Protest and Design Justice Network and all of these people that are coming to use design as a lens with all of these different mindsets and backgrounds, like, oh, I studied social work, but I now lean heavily into design for ways to to really communicate my work and to get things out there and to make change. It's mm-hmm. like, that's what design to me is and how it should have been talked about for all of this time. Design, it's not just this insular, oh, I am in design studio for eight hours a day studying at this university. And I have this portfolio of these very specific pieces. And now I'm a designer. Design is so many different things and so many different people coming to the table or literally the streets and moving in so many different ways. And I think that all of these things have built for us to get to this moment, right? I just think that that's so, it's dope. It's dope where we've been able to get. Oh, absolutely. And one thing that I have to mention, you know, you you shouted out some of your your peers earlier, Dr. Dory Tunstall, Dr. Leslie Ann Noel. Raja Shah is a doctor also, right? I know I've heard her name. I don't recall if she's a doctor or not. Raja's not a doctor, but Raja's actually one of my academic mentors because Raja was teaching at Georgia Tech when I was a student there and gave me my first teaching gig. I just have to, I always have to shout that out. Raja is the first person that let me teach a class. And I was like, please, somebody let me teach. I need to know how to teach for what I want to do. Nice. Um, Raja, Raja, let me do that. What is it like being a black woman at sort of the top level of design education in this way? That's an interesting question because I don't think I've ever thought about it like that. The design PhD in general in the United States is not widespread. We're still trying to figure out what's the utility of it. Like, why do you need a design PhD? In the United States, you get a master's. That's the terminal degree you can teach. You can go into industry. You don't even need a master's to have your own firm or your own consulting, whatever. So it's like, well, you can teach in certain design programs. Having a design PhD is, in my perspective, Literally because Leslie Ann, Dory, and myself, we all do a particular level of writing and research and getting grants and things like that to move in the ways that some of the other sciences do. So I less think of, I think about it less in the framework of like, oh, I'm one of the few Black women that has a PhD in design. Although I think that, that if I stop and thought about it, that is kind of like a, oh, that's whoa. <laughs> I think about it just more myself as an, another black woman academic. Still yeah. few, still few and far between. <laughs> like if you looked at my department right now, it's not like, oh, I'm the only black woman with a PhD in design. I'm the only black woman in my department, period. So I, 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 differentiating myself in that way is not something I oftentimes think about. But I do hope and I do see coming on the horizon, if not already here, Maybe not myself, but I definitely, and it's just because I don't always put myself in that equation. It's kind of like an imposter syndrome thing, but mm-hmm. I definitely see where the Dorries and the Leslie Ann's are shifting design. I mean, and I think last year was a moment to kind of put that on grand scale because more people were coming to them, but their work was already at that nexus of like, y'all, You know, the way Leslie Ann thinks about design, the way Dory is talking about design, the way what Dory is doing at OCAD and and bringing in all of these black faculty in design. And and, and even Raja, even, you know, and I don't I don't think a Ph.D. 
really matters because Raja is one of the people that is, I mean, you want to talk design, to me, the first person I'm, I'm going to mention is, is Raja Shah. So I think it's more so the impact that they're going to have in the field of design because of the types of work that they do, not necessarily because they have PhDs, but I guess they're probably synonymous or maybe, I don't know. Hmm. Now, we spoke about this a bit before we started recording, and I really want to kind of talk about it more now. But last year, a lot of organizations and companies really stepped out there, you know, to talk about how they support Black folks across a number of different fields, design included. And we talked about sort of what it looked like to have that influx of of interest and support. Do you still see that support now, a year later? Yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't. But I also am not particularly looking for it because mm-hmm. I don't think anybody was naive to what that moment was. As I mentioned, there were literally foundations that came and were like, we want to put you on an advisory board so that we can start to think about the equity within our project, our, our products and our projects. And, you know, they were also, again, throwing out the same names that I mentioned, you know, we, you, Leslie Ann and Dory and, and Raja and. I haven't heard from them and I couldn't tell you what's going on with that project. But I think it's one of those things where it's like, take from it what you needed to take from it and continue with the work. Don't let that be the sole motivation for the work. Don't let the die down of that make you feel like the work is any less important or necessary. Because for a lot of us, we've been talking about these things and we've been doing this type of work way before anybody was slapping our faces on flyers or panels or whatever. And we will be long after folks no longer care who we are. And I think that that's what energizes me. I think about like a Chris Rudd who has been talking about anti-racism in design. That's the whole reason that he ever started working in design and how in the moment of what happened last summer, I'm sure he, like other folks, folks became really familiar with who he was and was speaking on panels and this, that, and the third, but he's been doing that. He's been doing that work. He's been Mm -hmm. so invested in the community and the South side of Chicago. That is his whole lens to design is equity and anti-racism and workers' rights and thinking about design from a lens of what would a less racist Chicago look like and what would more equitable Bronzeville corridor look like he's been defining those things. And I think that I I hope that the moment of last year doesn't overshadow the fact that folks have been talking about these things. A lot of the organizers with designers protest, Brian Lee has been doing this area of design. We just came to, you know, a lot of folks just came to know him in the moment of, you know, what happened summer of 2020, but he's been organizing in this way. He's, he's Mm -hmm. been talking about design in this way. I don't think that to me, I didn't really even see the companies as much as I saw my friends and colleagues and people that I knew from afar and looked up to kind of pushed into people knowing their work as people should the companies and all the organizing, all that, all that was like, kind of noise that I knew would fall off anyway. And that that was never my focus. It's more like, okay, great. Now we have folks knowing the name of a Chris Rudd, a Brian Lee, a Dory Tunstall, like 
that's kind of what came out of that moment for me. I don't even really think about the fact that in 2021, those organizations or whoever are not still knocking down, at least my door. I don't know about other folks, but, and the folks that I'm mentioning, they're still doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. They, They didn't stop doing the work because whoever is no longer showcasing 31 days of black on their social media page or whatever, they're still doing the work. So to, I mean, yeah, to to piggyback off of your response there, you're a hundred percent right. You know, I think what last summer did is that it did help to, I think, amplify a lot of the work that those of us have been, been out there doing. It sucks though, that that support hasn't been continued or sustained. Like you can very much tell it was just like a, in some respects, kind of like a flash in the pan kind of thing. I'll share the anecdote. I won't name the company, but I'll share the anecdote that I shared with you before we started recording. Uh, that there was a certain very large pharmaceutical company that I spoke at last year that definitely was like, yeah, we really want to help out and do this, that, and the third and whatever. It had just become sort of very clear because they were asking, like, is this going to be like a continued thing? Do you think that there'll be more support out there that, that, you know, people know about this? And I'm like, ask me next year. Mm-hmm. Because right now, I mean, for those of us, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for a while. We've seen these kind of like spikes of support that come along mm-hmm. as it relates to it could be a societal issue or it could be an industry issue or something like that. And you get that little spike. And that's great when it happens. If you can sustain that, that's even better. But a lot of that support I know of from last year did sort of just like dry up or or the company got selective amnesia about mm-hmm. what they said or what they promised or, you know. It's been all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it is what it is. How can the listeners get more involved in the research areas that you're a part of? I think a lot of the organizations that I mentioned, right? I mean, I think that there's always going to be like that shameless, you want to do a PhD, come to death row type comment of like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> come, come work with the kid. You could, you could definitely do that. Yeah. But I also know that that's not always academia is not the only avenue to to do this work. So I even push some of my students like to be a part of Design Justice Network, be a part of do the the check ins with designers protest. I think that a lot of the collectives that I've come to learn about when we did the Denizen Designer Project, which it like started before the pandemic even hit, but we weren't able to put things out until I think like late last summer and you no, know, it kind of overlapped with, we were talking a lot about this area of design and then it was like, oh, the timing just kind of coincided of us starting to put out like the zine and the website and highlighting folks on social media. I think following the, the Denizen Designer project on Instagram and some of the folks that we highlighted, like looking into their work, looking into the collectives that either they lead or that they're a part of, or some of the projects they're doing on their own. I think that there are so many ways now, as we talked about, like the design equity and design justice is becoming more widespread. And so that there's so many ways to get involved. I think that people can tap into any one of those. What do you think you would have done if you hadn't went into academia? Real answer. I wanted to go to culinary school. (laughs) Okay. I wanted to go to culinary school. I wanted to do a bunch of different things when I was a kid. I I don't know if that's like some Sagittarius type stuff, but (laughs) (laughs) 
there was the the point in time pre-1998 when I was like, I'm going to be the first girl in the NBA. <laughs> and then there was, I want to go to culinary school. Like, I, I, I want to learn. Like, cooking was so sexy to me. I don't know why. I just thought, like, I, I wanted to, to cook. And then I think when I got to undergrad and, and I was grounded a little bit more, and even then barely, because I remember my, my end of my sophomore year, end of my freshman year, calling my mom and being like, I hate electrical engineering. I hate it here. You know, I want to get my degree in Africana studies and, and be a writer or something. And my mom being like, that, no, that, you're not. That, that's <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I wanted to do so many things. And it was like, engineering oddly was my safety net because I was smart in math and science. But yeah, it could have been a number of different things. Uh, and it still might be a number of different things because I don't believe that we're fixed to what we do in terms of our productivity or making money in this life. I don't think we have to be fixed to that. I still might end up opening a smoothie shop and <laughs> being the old black lesbian in the neighborhood that's just making smoothies and minding her business on the porch. That's just my kind of my character and, and how I see the world of just like wanting to do what feels good and what makes sense in the moment. I think this past year has shown me that I don't want to die working myself to death and stressing over a job. Mm. So what that looks like in the next 15, 20 years is very up in the air. Woo. You hit me with like a shot to the heart with that one. Woo. I I know exactly what you mean when you say that, like you don't stress will kill you. I mean, and if you, happen to be black if you happen to be anything else on top of that like it's it's a lot out here so i don't blame you i mean i think a lot of people are starting to come to their i won't say come to their senses because that implies some form of like brainwashing but like i think a lot of people are realizing like you know to be quite blunt fuck these jobs like Mm -hmm. (laughs) the work is always going to be there i think i had to come to terms with that a few years ago myself when i like really saw that I was really overworking myself. Like the work will always be there. You know, I may not, someone else can easily sub in for whatever, but like, I don't want to burn myself out trying to, you know, you don't get a medal for being a workaholic. So. Yep. When a lot of us realized a, I think last year, and I was, I was talking to a friend about this. I was like, last year literally showed us whose job was essential and whose wasn't and the ways that we need to sh- like kind of let go of some of that internal guilt of taking rest of taking time off, of going on vacation, that I know at least like black women, black queer, trans, non-binary folk in the academia and the academy, we tend to carry that. Like I gotta work harder to get where other people are. And so no days off. And you know, I also have the burden of uh, not the burden, but kind of like the invisible labor of holding space for all of the students who don't see themselves typically on campus and all of these things. And it's like, we also tend to statistically die younger because of it and Mm -hmm. not last and still not get tenured. So (laughs) I think the last year has taught me I'm going to rest. I am going to take time. I'm going to take vacations where I'm not touching my laptop. I think as burnt out as I was starting to feel with academia, one of the beautiful things that I quickly realized coming into CMU, there's a faculty by the name of Jessica Hammer in the ATI Institute who is all about that, making sure that you're working 
efficiently such that you can unplug and, and take care of yourself and have that balance. And I think that that's just the place that I'm, I'm kind of in because we watched the world go topsy-turvy and a lot of us didn't know how to put down productivity. We just, we didn't know how to not be defined by that. And it was, it was kind of sad and a little scary watching folks scramble to do what felt like normal, but what felt like normal was work, at least in the context of the U S. Yeah. Shout out to the nap ministry. I I first heard about them last year. I think it might've been right around the summer of last year, but like shout out to the nap ministry. Rest is resistance. Absolutely. Shout out to the nap ministry. Shout out to pleasure activism. Shout out to any messaging that is just like, take care of you. Cause we, we have to be reminded of that. Right. Like I think Denise is a, is a great example in the way that they're operating black women floors is like, Hey y'all, we're taking a break (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, that is like such a, a simple, but I've never, I've never thought to just be like, <laughs> no, it's not a holiday, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to take a, I'm just going to go to the lake for a yeah. couple of days and yeah. not answer my email and y'all will be okay. Yeah. This work, <laughs> we know the jobs that are essential now. We know what we need to literally survive yeah. as a society and you know, more than likely my journal article isn't part of that. <laughs> so yeah. I can take a break. I can take a nap. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> what are you obsessed with at the moment? Mm, so many things from Real Housewives of Potomac. Do not shame me, but I love them. <laughs> um, I'm obsessed with that. I am obsessed with, in terms of design, like, this concept of futuring and speculative design, but through a lens of Afrofuturism, I'm obsessed with the concept of like, there are black people in the future. I think it, it, it's become ingrained in everything I see and everything I do from like TV shows. You know, I like a lot of like sci-fi and, you know, those psychological thrillers or like those, um, you know, the world has ended as we know it. And now it's 24, 42, and here's what civilization looks like. You watch those shows and you're like, wait, so in 2442, there's no black people. Did y'all not <laughs> in, the ca- in the casting call? Y'all didn't even think to put one mixed girl, nothing. And it's like, you know, that concept of like us, the longevity and what our futures looks like has become something that I'm, I'm super obsessed with. I'm obsessed with, I'm obsessed with art. Of course. I think that that's what attracted me to, design because I was introduced to design as like this mesh of engineering and and visual art. So the visual art is always going to be something that like aesthetically, like I love collecting art in my home. I love going to museums and learning the history of especially like political art, what people were trying to say through their art. I'm obsessed with my travel list, (laughs) like my travel bucket list and like that is part of my, my selfish Americanism of like, when am I going to be able to just roam the world again and feel safe? Yeah. If safe to the, the extent of being like black masculine presenting queer woman on this earth as, as safe as we feel anyway, I will admit this, but if you see me in person, I'm not going to want to engage in it in person. I'm not a LeBron hater, 
but <laughs> I follow his career, so I'm slightly obsessed with how long is this man going to play in the NBA? It's not even like a Vince Carter, right? Like where yeah. Vince was like, he's old and he might go in for like five minutes and do a dunk and then you can see him kind of limping off the court and he's done. LeBron is still playing as like the centerpiece <laughs> of the team mm-hmm. going into what, 35, 36? So I'm kind of obsessed with like what that moment is going to be when he real like, is that going to come? I mean, he's, he's conditioned his body so well. And I think he's obsessed with proving to people that he can still do it. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of as an avid basketball fan, I'm kind of obsessed with seeing how long he goes. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? I think I'll still be doing similar work. I don't know. I mean, I have great interest in doing more like civic technology fellowships where I'm taking a year and focusing on a project that sits outside of the academic institution, like the walls of the academic institution or Mm -hmm. consulting with folks that are thinking about larger scale problems. I think that that's kind of the the next direction that I feel like I want to go in at some point. I don't know what capacity that's going to look like. Cause like I said, I tend to let the work lead me, but I would love to do a fellowship. Yeah. Some type of fellowship that was focused on like a larger scale problem that was dealing with digital access or um, design equity somewhere. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So my personal website, ChristinaHarrington.me, although it's not, I mean, that flashy, that's where I keep updates of, somewhat updates of, just it's somewhat updated of like my travel and where I'm speaking, you know, my research projects, the papers that I've published and things like that. You can always follow me on Twitter at, at a dapper prof. I'm always ranting about academia, design, the Real Housewives of Potomac rest productivity and yeah i mean i'm not really i have pages on like linkedin and stuff like that i don't use them as much but i'd say that those are the two places all right sounds good well christina harrington i want to thank you so much for coming on the show i know when we first met actually it was was a few years ago we met at black and design Mm -hmm. um which they are having again this year so i think by the time this episode comes out people will start hearing some of the the advertisements around the events uh, that'll be happening in October again, virtually this year. It was just so good to to talk with you and to learn about the work that you're doing around design equity, your new role at Carnegie Mellon. I just feel like we're going to hear so much more from you in these coming years about the work that you're doing, because it's really super important. I think now that so much of our world has been driven online because of the pandemic in terms of interactions and just, you know, general socialization that a lot of the work you're doing around design equity and stuff like that is going to be super important. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Big, big thanks to Dr. Christina and Harrington. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Dr. Harrington and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, 
and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. On the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, join the Harvard Graduate School of Design virtually for the Black in Design 2021 conference. This year's theme, Black Matter, is a celebration of black space and creativity from the magical to the mundane. Their speakers, performers, and panelists will bring nuance to the trope of black excellence and acknowledge the urgent political, spatial, and ecological crises facing black communities across the diaspora. You don't want to miss out on this weekend of learning, community, and connection. Visit them online at blackmatter.tv to learn more and be a part of the event. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention that it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please don't be a stranger. Talk to us. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.